little bit different because the goal was a little bit different. You see, what we were going to do in the test as we filled out these little circles with our number two pencils was uh, they were going to use our interests and our skills and our passions and all of these things, and they were going to tell us uh, with this test what would be our ideal job that we were suited for, okay? So it's essentially answering the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or what should I want to be when I grow up? And so you can imagine, as a little fourth grader, my excitement when a couple weeks later the results of this test comes back. And our, our teacher hands all the results out, and I grab my paper, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, okay, I see a lot of numbers and bar graphs and pie charts, all of which do not make sense. And I'm looking at the top of the page like, okay, where's the job? Like, where's my dream job? What am I supposed to be looking for here? And there was this number code at the top I didn't really understand. And so like a good student, I raised my hand and the teacher came over and I said, hey, uh, I I don't get it. Where's the, where's the, like the job that I'm so well suited for? And she goes, well, Jared, um, you see the way that you answered the questions, it got a, you got kind of a rare result. Um, the way that you answered the questions was so all over the board that it couldn't really identify a job that you might be good at. <laughs> and you can imagine me being crushed in that moment. Meanwhile, my friends are like high-fiving and saying, hey, I'm going to be a doctor. Oh, this says I'm going to be a pilot. I'm going to go into the army or I'm going to go be a teacher. And I'm crushed as a little four-year-old. Don't you feel sorry for me a little bit? Like I'm sitting there with no idea, left confused, no idea what I was good at, no idea what I was going to grow up to be, like no idea what my significance was. It was the first of many identity crises as a young child, little fourth grade Jared. So I think we grow into adulthood and um, we kind of have the same uh, desire to, to know about ourselves and kind of know our significance. A lot of you are maybe uh, enamored or have taken tests like the Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, the Strengths Finder test. In our denomination, we use a test called the SDI. Uh, some of you have taken the DISC test before. All these different things. And I think it's not a coincidence that many of us are drawn to these things. Because we want to know like who we are. We want to know how we can flourish. And ultimately, we, we really want to know that we matter. We want to know that we have some sort of uh, some sort of purpose. Uh, I mean, wouldn't it, be a, wouldn't it just be a relief if somebody would come up to you and say, hey, here's who you are, here's what you're good at, here's how you're uniquely wired, and, and just, just do that. Here's the specific job you should do. Here's your specific calling. Here's how you're going to impact the world. Like, wouldn't that be a relief if somebody would just tell us that? So this morning with our time, I'm going to do something a little bit different than we usually do, and we're going to do uh, a flyover of the entire book of Acts, okay? It's only 28 chapters, don't worry. It won't take any more than 14 hours to be here. Uh, no, but we're, we're going to read the story of Acts, and the story of Acts is a story um, of how the church got started. It's a story of how unique and gifted individuals, uh, through the power of the Spirit, uh, recognizing their purpose and their purpose in God's mission uh, actually went forward and, and some amazing things happened and the church grew out of nothing. Now, I don't think that any of these uh, early church people knew their Enneagram type or their top five strengths on Strengths Finder, but they did recognize that they had a purpose and it fit into a larger purpose that was God's purpose. And so I think for us this morning, that desire to really like, of self-discovery to know ourselves and that desire to, um, 
to really know that we matter, to know that we have purpose. I think that is going to uh, meet up today with this uh, story in the book of Acts, and it's going to show that that desire that we have is ultimately fulfilled in being gifted by God for a life with God. We're going to see those things uh, kind of mixed together today. And so this morning, I'm going to try to do, uh, attempt to do three things. The first thing is I just want to give us a foundation for what it means to be gifted by God or, or spiritual gifts. We're going to talk about a foundation. And then, uh, then I want to talk about two applications. We're going to spend most of our time talking about these two applications as we see them in the text. One is that, that everyone has a part to play. And the second one is just very simply, be ready. Okay, we'll explain that later. You know where I'm going with that later. And uh, so we're going um, to dive into this. And my hope for you is that you uh, really have this sense as you walk out of here that the Holy Spirit is living and active and working in you if you're a follower of Jesus and that we should expect him to do things. And the second thing is I'm really hoping that, um, that we just are inspired for his mission. That we're excited to go out and be with Jesus on mission uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we dive into this, I do want to give a little caveat because some of you hear spiritual gifts, you're like, ooh, I wonder if he's going to talk about some controversial stuff. Like, I feel like the vast majority of stuff about spiritual gifts on the internet uh, is all arguing between people about different things like tongues and prophecy and interpreters and all that. And we're not going to touch that today because I don't believe that that's at the foundation of what the book of Acts is all about. So, sorry if that, if we don't hit you there, but this is uh, what we're going to do. Acts 1, this is where being gifted starts. And this is Jesus talking to his disciples. It's the very last thing he said. This is the verse that we're going to launch out from, from a foundation. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, <clears throat> um, these are words from Jesus. This happens right after Jesus, a, a matter of weeks after Jesus resurrected from the dead. And the, the reality is, is Jesus came to earth to bring life, spiritual life, eternal life to people who were dead in sin. And by his death on the cross that happened just weeks before this, uh, he paid the penalty for sin. And through his resurrection, he had an ultimate victory over sin. And now when we are people who trust in him, What happens is that our sins are wiped out. We can be forgiven of those things, and we get life. Just like Jesus was raised to life, we are raised to a new life. But the amazing thing is, is God in the form of the Holy Spirit comes inside of us to dwell in us. And not only that, but he propels us outward on mission. He propels us outward. As this gospel, this good news has come to us, he pushes us out to take it to other people. And that last concept is what Jesus is essentially explaining Right here. You see, this story, it takes place right after the resurrection, and it's right before he's ascending into heaven. So these are Jesus' very last words to his closest friends, to his most devout followers, and he tells them about a key event that is going to change them drastically. It's going to change everything dramatically. And he says, Jesus is saying, when this event happens, you are all of a sudden going to have power, like supernatural power. He says, when this event happens, you're going to have a new purpose, a new 
identity, to be a, a witness of mine. And you're even going to have a new part to play. Uh, you're going to have a defined part to play in that as a witness, you're going to take my message, my good news to different people. And this new power, this new purpose, this new part to play, all of this will happen. It will initiate when the Holy Spirit comes. That's what he's saying here. Now, when we talk about giftedness, um, many times we'll say things like, oh, Gabe is a gifted musician, or, you know, Meredith or Jean is a gifted they're gifted vocalists, right? Or if you're here for the psalm series during the summer, uh, you remember uh, the, the psalms artwork that we had. Aaron Grace painted those. We're like, oh, Aaron is a gifted artist. Or Andrew, uh, Pastor Andrew is a gifted thinker. Or if you've met my wife, she is gifted relationally. Or she likes to talk, I guess. I don't know. One of those two. It's probably one and the same, right? Um, but as Christians, we have one primary gift, one foundational gift, and that is the Holy Spirit. Pastor and author Sam Storms puts it this way. We're going to drive this uh, into the ground today. It says that his definition is gifts are God going public among his people. So God going public in his people and through his people. That's kind of a cool definition, right? In other words, God doesn't, when we become Christians, God doesn't give us supernatural powers in order to be able to impress people so we're walking around as a church like the Christian version of the Avengers. Like, that's not the idea here. But rather, God gives you himself, a supernatural being, to come inside of you to, to do amazing acts, but to do it through your ordinary and normal self. And the purpose of these gifts is not so that we can receive glory, not so that we can be seen as impressive or extraordinary, but so that we are God-empowered and God-centered in everything we do. Now, in some ways, this kind of flips some of our, um, some of our pursuit for some of these personality kind of tests that we go, go after. It flips some of it on its head because I think we're so eager to, to find out about ourselves so that we can be someone important so that we can know we have value. But God says that I'll use the Holy Spirit inside of you through your unique gifting, through your unique wiring to not show that maybe you're great, but to show that God is great. Not to show that you are important, but to show that God is important. Does that make sense? So, so self-discovery is important. It's important to know who you are, how God has created you, what you're good at, maybe some things that you could struggle with. But the way that your uniqueness is so great is, is God created you unique so that you can know how you can be a unique witness, how you can be a unique disciple of his on mission with him. That's why in Acts 1.8 it says, and we receive the the power of the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, that we will be his witnesses to Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit starts, he comes inside of us and starts working in us and through our words and through our actions, and in that and through that, uh, we are witnesses, we point to Jesus. Now that is the foundation of being gifted, is that the ultimate gift is the Holy Spirit and his power inside of us. And now we're going to launch out from here, like I said, as Acts 1-8 is kind of a launching pad into the rest of the book of Acts. And so we're going to see God go public 
And we're going to see two different applications. And the first one I want to talk about is that everyone has a part, okay? Everyone has a part to play. And so let's look at uh, this next, <coughs> excuse me, this next verse, uh, Acts 2, 1 through 4. This is what Jesus was talking about. He said, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, here's what you see. This Holy Spirit event is happening, has happened. What Jesus had predicted, this is when it happens. The Holy Spirit comes down, fills these, fills these believers, and what's happening here is something supernatural, that they're speaking in ways that there's the whole crowd around, and even though they don't naturally speak the same language, that these, these men are understanding them. These people are understanding what the disciples are saying when the Holy Spirit comes down to them. And we're not going to read there right now, but if you go a little bit farther into Acts 2, it, it says that Peter, he stands up and he boldly, in a tongue that everyone can hear because the Holy Spirit is empowering him, he's making God go public through him, he starts talking and he preaches his first sermon and he invites people to believe in Jesus. And on that day, on his first sermon ever, 3,000 men say yes to Jesus and they're baptized. That's not a bad day at the office for a pastor for his first sermon. I hope the video of my first sermon is burned forever so no one can see it. It's rather embarrassing and quite horrible. But in the very next chapter... After you see this, this picture of how the first church was formed when these 3,000 came to faith. In the very next chapter, Peter and John, kind of on a roll, they're uh, walking around and they come upon this lame man. This man who uh, hasn't been able to walk since the day he was born. And uh, the man looks at Peter and John and he basically is saying, hey, I wonder if they have some money for me. Maybe they can help me out financially a little bit. And Peter and John are like, oh no, that's, we don't have anything like that to give to you but I will tell you what we can give. And he said, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And so through the supernatural power of God in that moment, this man who has never stood up in his life, his legs start working and he starts walking. God goes public through the Holy Spirit working through Peter again. This starts a firestorm and Peter and John get pulled before uh, the Jewish council in Jerusalem. And these men are not happy with them because things are happening. God is going public. Jesus is becoming famous. People are not so interested in their religion and their rituals. And people are starting to follow this Jesus by following Peter and John. And and God is going public through this. And they pulled Peter and John uh, in front of them. And after an exchange, they said, okay, that's it. You cannot talk about this Jesus anymore. You're done. And Peter and John look at them and Peter says, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. If the Holy Spirit's moving, we're going to say it. Now, my application or the main idea for this section was that everyone has a part. Now, up until this point, it actually doesn't necessarily seem like everyone has a part, right? Like, Who's doing all of the ministry? It seems like the disciples. They've been lifted up. They're the ones who are having these gifts, right? And then Peter and John get highlighted in the first four or five chapters. These are 
the dudes, and especially Peter. He's the one giving the big sermon. He's the one seeing thousands of people come to faith. He's the one who's talk, or who is talking to people, and those people are getting healed and baptizing all these people. Even in the very next chapter, Peter, once again, has another supernatural healing, but slowly this, this story it starts to broaden out a little bit. And in chapter 4, while, while Peter is doing all this extraordinary out-front leadership, there's something else that's happening behind the scenes. Acts chapter 4. Uh, let's look at this. <clears throat> Starting in verse 34. This is what was happening behind the scenes. It says, There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and uh, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see, this mission that was going forward out front with Peter was being supported by these people like Barnabas and these unnamed people who don't get a mention who are, who are radically giving in the backdrop. In the very next chapter, it continues to kind of highlight this theme. So uh, the people of the church in the next chapter, chapter 5, were actually, they, they recognized there was a lot of sick people around. And they were actually picking up the sick people, it says, and they're bringing them out, out of their houses, into the streets, and they're laying them down on cots and mats so that when Peter walks by, whenever he walks by, he can heal them. So you see this odd teamwork that's going on. Like, on one hand, God is urging these believers with the gift of service. It's a humble gift at times. He's encouraging them to pick up these sick people, touch them, and put them out in the streets. And at the same time, he's calling Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to heal. Different parts to play, and Jesus used them all to bring glory to him by the Holy Spirit working through them. Then, in the passage that was read by Jane earlier in in Acts 6, it reflects this again. It says that that some of the widows and some of the poor, the vulnerable in the community, were not being taken care of. And the disciples recognized this, and they said, okay, wait, that's actually not okay. But we're gifted uh, to be preachers and to pray. And so what we're going to do is we're going to keep on preaching and what we should do and what you should do is pick out seven men from among you. And he said, they need to be of good reputation. They need to be full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. And those people are going to do the work of service. They're going to divide out the needs. They're going to bring food, money, whatever to these people. And so while the disciples remain out front, these seven men we're supposed to serve in the backdrop. These seven men, uh, Jane named all of them. Some of them are hard to pronounce, but Stephen and Philip were among two of them that get mentioned later of the seven men that have different roles. They were in the backdrop, the disciples, the apostles in the forefront, but there is one spirit, one mission, all of them vital. God went public through these spiritual gifts that they had. Now, 
I think we need to pause here for a second because we live in a culture where we celebrate the upfront leaders. We celebrate the people who can communicate and cast vision and have popular YouTube channels and the people who have all the charisma. These are the people that we consider the top of the top. And sadly, just as it is outside the church, it's the same inside the church. That Who do we idolize in churches? We idolize the pastor who who preaches these sermons, we say, he killed it again, and they have all these followers. Or this worship leader who's writing songs and being creative and all, all, like putting out these worship albums that everyone's following. We idolize preachers. We idolize worship leaders time and time again. And we think that a church, well, obviously a church is going to be wildly successful if they have a, a, a preacher with a little charisma and a worship leader who's creative and good, Right? But Acts would tell us that only one thing is vital for the church thriving. And that's the Holy Spirit moving. And Acts would also tell us that there is one way that the Holy Spirit moves to create a healthy church. And that is through uniquely gifted people who serve both up front and behind the scenes. It takes people to give generously. It takes people to serve by picking up dead bodies and and carrying them somewhere. It it takes people with the gift of hospitality and and prayer warriors. You read the book of Acts and you start looking for this and you see all these people behind the scenes, people who are hosting gatherings in their home, people who are prayer warriors behind the scenes, people who are laying hands on people to send out these some of these men who are uh, getting uh, recognition for all that they're doing. There's just a, uh, a myriad of people behind the scenes who are supporting this ministry of the names that we know so well. Everyone has a part, but at the end of the day, Jesus is the one who gets the glory through the power of the Holy Spirit working through these gifts. You know, I uh, <clears throat> before I... Uh, was here at Providence before we planted this church, I got the opportunity to lead a college ministry called 808 Across Town. And it was a, uh, a cool opportunity to be able to lead. And I inherited this amazing ministry. Uh, and really, to be a little bit blunt, what happened over the course of the first year, it was great. And then it kind of, many things, numerically and maybe just in momentum and impact, it kind of started going downhill, maybe a reflection of my leadership. I don't know. But um, in the second year... Um, I was looking around and I'm like, man, we have a great staff here. We've got a solid worship leader here. Um, and we have these student leaders. Man, we had some amazing college students who were killer disciple makers, way mature beyond their years. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, man, this is the recipe for success. What exactly is going on here? It felt like we weren't really moving anywhere. And so what happened, uh, next, I guess, there was a couple students in our ministry um, who I recognized. I thought, man, these, I think these guys have the gift of hospitality. And, um, and what specifically was happening in that time is that I, were, I was hearing some complaints and some kind of, uh, you, know, you know, kind of murmurings from people that were saying, you know, the problem with 808 is it feels like it's, it's not a community. It feels like we're not really a family. Like, um, you know, we study the Bible together and that's great, but it feels like we're not even friends when we're in the same room with each other. And so it, I saw that as a problem. And uh, 
saw these two that I thought had the gift of hospitality, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to send a flippant Facebook message to them. So I sent a message to both of these, one guy, one girl, and I said, hey, it seems like you guys are gifted in this area. You like to open up your homes. Uh, Could you just kind of, this is where we're at. We're struggling a little bit. Could you um, just champion this idea of just hosting people, just hospitality? And literally, when I say gift of hospitality, I mean they liked to open up their front door and let people come through, and they were also good at creating Facebook events and just sending out invites to people. That's it. That's what, that's what they were good at. But they started creating Facebook events, and they started opening up their homes on the weekends, and they started having bonfires at their houses. They had Halloween parties. They had game nights. They had movie nights. And people started coming in. And, and through this, as as this was happening, all of a sudden, people started coming together. People started being a little bit closer, being friends. We had dozens of people who started influxing into the ministry. The ministry was growing. People started to get saved. And at the end of that year and into the next three or four years that I was there, it actually changed the entire culture of the ministry so that if a couple of years ago someone would have asked the average student, it was almost unanimous across the board, if you would say, hey, what do you love about this college ministry? What do you think is the, the best strength of this? They would say the community. It's the family aspect. We feel like we're all in this together through Two people with the gift of hospitality, the Holy Spirit worked through them to make God go public through these events. People got saved, people got baptized, the culture changed of a whole ministry. Now, if you're a Christian, God wants to go public through your gifts. You have a part to play, and in your ability to be a part of something like a setup team or serving coffee or greeting people or hosting a city group or leading a city group or, or holding babies downstairs or singing songs and leading worship downstairs or leading worship up here, those things have eternal impact. That is God going public through the gifts that he has given you. He wants everyone to participate, both on stage and off stage. So Providence, could we be a church that that doesn't revere a a preacher over a a nursery worker who's holding babies? Could we not celebrate the worship leader any more than someone who greets at the door, who sits at the welcome table? Could we uh, celebrate the people who clean up and and tear down here or set up in the morning just as much as we praise the city group leader? for leading out front in that way. God has uniquely wired us to serve in order to make God go public through his Holy Spirit's power. Now, I want to continue to tell the story in Acts, or some of the story. Application number one is that everyone has a part, and you see that through the unique wirings and giftings that we have. And then next... Uh, the, my second application is just very simply, be ready. Okay, I know that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I think you're going to understand what I mean here in just a second. Just be ready. So we saw in Acts chapter 6 that, that Stephen and Philip, they were chosen uh, to be these kind of behind-the-scenes servants. They were the people who were supposed to be taking care of the widows in the community. And so you think, okay, that's their role. That's their wiring. That's what, how God is going to use them. Well, 
these low-profile disciples uh, didn't exactly stay low-profile disciples. So if you look at Acts 6, verse 8, you see up here, this is Stephen, one of the men who was chosen to serve behind the scenes. He said, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of freedmen and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and dis- disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Wait, isn't this the guy who was supposed to be serving the widows behind the scenes? And now he's the guy who's preaching out front. As a matter of fact, he preaches, right following this passage, he preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts. God is going public in a different way than he was initially serving. You go on to the next chapter. The next unassuming servant, his friend Stephen, or excuse me, his friend Philip. Now, okay, so Stephen, I do have to say something. After Stephen preached that sermon there, he actually got stoned. Uh, not great news. It probably won't happen to you if you preach in America, but I just thought I'd throw that out there because as a part of the story. He gets stoned to death, <coughs> and this man named Saul is ravaging the church, persecuting Christians, going after people. And so a bunch of the Christians in Jerusalem, they fled for their own lives. And Philip, one of the guys who was chosen, he flees too, and he goes down to Samaria. And in the next chapter, it says, um, in Acts 8, chapter, or 8, verse 5, it says that he proclaimed to them Christ. In other words, he's doing the same thing. He's preaching. The crowds are coming to him. They're seeing him. He's even healing people. People are coming and they're wanting to get baptized. This is completely different than this first assignment that he had. And through Philip, the gospel spreads to Samaria through God going public, through the Holy Spirit working through him. You see that here? Then, after that, God speaks to Philip in 826. This may be a story that you're familiar with. And he says, Rise up and go toward the south to the road that goes down to Jerusalem to Gaza. And he rose and he went. He didn't know why, but God just, the Spirit just told him to go. And so he goes there. And what happens is there's a man, uh, they call him the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's traveling in a chariot. And God tells Philip once again, now that he sees this man, he says, hey, go over and, and talk to him. Explain this to him. Teach him something. And so he runs over to the chariot, and this man is reading out of the book of Isaiah, and he's like, I don't know what this is all about. What does this mean? And Philip does know, because he knows Jesus, and he knows the gospel, and through the Holy Spirit's power, he explains the gospel to him, that Isaiah is a prophecy about Jesus. The man gives his life to Jesus on the spot and says, hey, can I be baptized right now? And he gets saved, and he gets baptized right there, and the gospel once again God goes public through the Holy Spirit working through Philip. I mean, it happens over and over again, and the gospel spreads through this man into Ethiopia, back to his home. There are so many more stories like this in Acts, but I want to highlight um, one more story that's a little bit of a curveball. So uh, there's a man named, uh, uh, a man called Paul in the... um, in Acts, and he has a long, crazy backstory, but it's quite a story. I don't have time to tell it today, but the reality is, is that he stepped, he got saved by Jesus, and he was doing some amazing 
things out front, kind of like Peter was. So if Peter seems to be uh, the the man that's highlighted in the first half of Acts, then in the second half of Acts, then you see uh, Paul really kind of has uh, a lot of the highlighting there. And so what happens, so Paul, his thing is he's a church planter. He's he, he preaches to people, he plants churches, he leads people, he multiplies himself, and boom, it just keeps blowing up. He keeps planting churches. He keeps going. And he would probably fit in fairly decent around here in our City Light family of churches where we're trying to, to plant churches. Uh, he's just, he's getting a lot of stuff done, I'll say that. Church planting is kind of his thing. And so it says in Acts 18 verse 1 that he comes into Corinth and you're thinking, oh man, here he goes again. This thing is going to blow up. It's going to be crazy. What's he going to do? And it says that he goes and he meets this husband and wife called Aquila and Priscilla and uh, learns that they are uh, followers of Jesus, but they make tents for a living. And, and it says uh, in chapter 18 that, that Paul uh, has a connection with them because he also makes tents. And so he decides to settle down in Corinth and make tents. And it says he stays there for 18 months and does it. You're like, wait, this is the all-star disciple. This is the church planting machine. This is the master multiplier. This is, this is the, like the, the master leader. And Paul here does the reverse of these other stories. He went from up front and he moved into the back. He moved behind the scenes because God called him to faithfully work and to earn money and to support the widows and the vulnerable and the needy that were in the church in and around Corinth. Now, you may consider yourself gifted for upfront ministry. Some of you might. Others of you might consider yourself gifted for uh, behind-the-scenes type ministry. But a life with God is a life of the Spirit making God go public through you. So sometimes it's going to make sense through your natural giftings and wirings that God has given you. And sometimes it's just not. Sometimes our our plans are going to blow up and sometimes the Spirit will frighteningly force you from the backdrop up front to be able to to teach and speak and talk. And sometimes the Spirit will... Uh, humbly pull you back from the stage to serve behind the scenes in a different way. And our response each time should be, yes, be ready. Is anyone getting nervous right now that God's going to call them to preach, by the way? It's a little frightening, right? But get ready, be bold, come ready. If Jesus, uh, if he calls you to, to teach, if he calls you to speak, then, then do it. If you have an opportunity at the gym or at a coffee shop and the Spirit says, hey, go talk to that person, go talk to them. If you're mid-conversation and the Spirit says, say something, then say something. Defend the truth. Stand up for Jesus. The Spirit is trying to make God go public through you. we got to be ready for this. And if you've trusted Jesus, the Holy Spirit has come upon you so that Uh, you can be his witness, so that God can go public through you. And so we need to be ready to say yes. Is your yes on the table? Is our yes on the table to step forward if he calls us forward? Is our yes on the table to, to step back if he calls us to step back? 
or a people who have been gifted to to make God go public, and, and we need to be ready for that unique role that he's called us into. And I think, man, I, I love reading through this Acts story. I read through um, all 28 chapters in this last week, and I'm like, man, we need to be reading this regularly, like at least once a year, read through this thing, because it opens our eyes to what God is doing. The reason I love this Acts story is because uh, it's our story. And I don't mean figuratively, that like it, it kind of parallels our story, but it is actually our story when you think of how God has gone public through the power of the Holy Spirit in that it started with these 12 disciples. They said yes to the Spirit, working through them in conventional and unconventional ways, and it multiplied out from there. Thousands of people believed, and then they multiplied out, and it went and it went, and it multiplied, and it multiplied until it got to the end of the earth, halfway across the world, which is where we're at now. And it multiplied all the way until it got to us here in this room. And in 2017, it multiplied again right here to the Blackstone District in Omaha, Nebraska, and Providence Church was planted. And now we have received the Spirit. And the question is, is are we going to be witnesses? Are we going to be committed to God going public through us, through the power of the Holy Spirit? And I hope that's the story of our church. I hope that's the legacy that that Providence has and leads. You know, as, as individuals, as we you know, go throughout our days and at times as we scrape and we clamor and we fight to try to find out, um, man, who we are, our meaning and our purpose, might we be reminded of the spirit who has come to us to propel us forward on God's mission, to make God go public. He can do that through you. He can do that through us whether it totally makes sense with your wiring, your natural giftings, or whether it's completely off your radar and you're terrified to do it, God wants to use the power of the Holy Spirit to gift you to help God go public. And I want to end by just praying to that end, that God would do that exact thing in our community in our church. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing to see people, even people who are reserved and and shy introverts become evangelists. Wouldn't it be cool to see God do some amazing supernatural things in our midst? To see Him, uh, to see Him heal people physically. Wouldn't it be cool to see Providence plant churches through the power of the Holy Spirit? Man, I dream that these things could come true. And man, I want to pray that God would do that exact thing. That God would go public through us. So would you let me pray for us? Jesus, um, well, what a cool thing to be a part of a mission that's bigger than us. God, would we be people who don't sell out to uh, lesser missions, uh, God, but be focused on you? And God, as we learn more about ourselves and want to figure out who we are and on our journey toward self-discovery in a way, God, I pray that we could see those through the lens of how we could bring glory to you, how we could point to you. Ultimately, man, what an amazing idea that just us 
collectively and as individuals, we could help you go public through us and through the people around us. And Jesus, we beg that you would do exactly that, that we could see people give their lives to you. Many, many, many people, that we could see people baptized, that we could see people healed, God, that we could see churches planted, that we could see city groups multiplied, that we could see disciples being made in our midst. Uh, Jesus, we ask you because you are the one who is in charge. God, you are the one uh, who receives the glory, and you are the one who sent the Holy Spirit and has the power. God, we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I'd love to invite our communion servers forward. Um, Each week we take a few minutes to observe communion, and as we um, eat the bread and take the juice to remind us of the body and blood of Jesus on the cross and how uh, we were once far off to God and now we have been brought near to Jesus. Today we are talking about the spirit and in being brought near, God has come so near that he is now now inside of us. And the reality is, is those blessings, so many blessings, maybe the greatest of all, which is the spirit inside of us, are nowhere close to possible without what Jesus first did. We were not good enough. We were not wise enough. uh, We were not holy enough to get to God, but we were enemies from him. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And now we have been united with Jesus. We have a heavenly father and we have been equipped and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And that's good news. And it's possible because of what Jesus has done for us. And so with that in mind, I would invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus, uh, to come forward and take communion as the Spirit leads you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd invite you to remain seated. And in just a minute, uh, we'll continue singing with the band. There's uh, two stations here and a gluten-free station in the back. But could we worship Jesus wholeheartedly as we take communion together today?